You may or may not know this name, but Musab Hassan Yusuf. Try to say that three times, but uh, Musab Hassan Yusuf grew up as a Muslim. From an early age, he studied the Korans uh, and memorized its teachings, said the daily prayers, followed the way of Islam as faithfully as he could. And in that respect, he was like many other young men growing up in Palestine uh, along the West Bank, and Palestinian uh, along the West Bank, with one uh, notable exception uh, that, of, his, of who he was. His father was one of the founders of Hamas. If you know what Hamas is, Hamas is the militant terrorist organization of the Palestinians that is looking to violently overthrow uh, Israel and, in the words of many of the radical Muslims, to literally drive Israel into the sea and to be rid of the Jews. And that his father was one of the founding members. They uh, did a movie of his life. I haven't seen it, but he was also called the Green Prince, you know, the significance of green in Islam. And so he was not just any Palestinian. His uh, you could almost say uh, under Hamas royalty, he was a person of notable fame. And he wrote this book called Son of Hamas, which uh, is a fascinating story and uh, encourage you to pick it up or order it. But he tells uh, in this book, he tells of a, an account of when he uh, met a man who uh, gave him a New Testament. And because of his interest in religion and wanting to study religious matters and be uh, kind of up on uh, those things, he decided that he would read this New Testament for himself. And naturally, uh, the New Testament, he began with the Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and began to read the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, when he came to chapter 5, he encountered Jesus' teaching, uh, the section of the Sermon on the Mount. And it was here that he got an unfiltered exposure to the pure teachings of Christ, to the teachings of Jesus. And he said that as he began to read and think about the teachings of Jesus, he said it just really began to blow him away at the radicalness of Jesus. And on a radio interview, he said that he couldn't get away from the revolutionary nature of Jesus' teaching. And he said in one particular point just he couldn't shake off of something that Jesus said. And so this is our passage, and it'll be on the screen, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. And when Jesus uh, said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But that particular verse 44, he said, I was thunderstruck. He said, and this is the message that resonated with my heart. He said, and soon I gave my life to Christ. Now imagine the son of a Hamas founder, this radical Palestinian Muslim converting to Christianity. And as he writes in his book, he said, there was three words that just captured my heart. He said that I couldn't get away from. Jesus said, love your enemies. Don't hate them. 
Love your enemies. Don't despise them. Love your enemies. Don't kill them. On a radio interview, he continued, he said, all the other religions say, love your friends, love your neighbor, but only Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, that's easy to say, isn't it? Come on, don't look so holy. That's easy to say, isn't it? Right? But it's harder to put into practice. It's harder to do. Maybe it might be one of the more difficult commands that Jesus gave. And when we read it, we almost scratch our heads and think, now, uh, maybe go back to 44, verse 44, go back one. You know, when we read it, uh, you know, we think, well, certainly Jesus didn't really mean me. He didn't know my situation, or he doesn't know what this person did, or this person I just really don't like, or this person who you know, I thought it was my friend that stabbed me in the back, attacked me, and someone who hurt one of my loved ones or children. You know, if you ever want to see a parent's ire is just go after one of their children. One thing I have learned in pastoral ministry, don't miss critical with anybody's kids. If you want a short tenure if you, want a, if you want a death sentence in a minute, no, you know what I'm saying? I mean, how many of you found? You know, you can, you can spank your kid, right? Right? But you, nobody better else touch that kid. You know what I'm saying? You're going to come after them, right? Or, or discipline. I know it should be more politically correct, sorry. Um, but discipline your, your kid, right? Uh, I grew up with spankings, uh, so, and quite, got quite a few of them. Contrary to what my wife thinks, uh, I did get quite a few of those. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that we would rather think about or perhaps would think about concerning our so-called enemies and, and forgiving and uh, doing good to them is not one of them. We, we more or less think of how can we get even with them? How can we cause them to suffer like we've suffered. Now, again, don't nod your heads because we don't want to lose the, the aura of spirituality in here. But nothing, you know, just gets down to the raw emotion when somebody has done something that has hurt us deeply or hurt someone we care about deeply. And if we're honest, it isn't just we're mad at them, but it, it really is that we hate them. You remember WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, this is a good WWJD moment of what Jesus would do, but maybe WWJS, what, did, what would Jesus say about your hatred towards this person? Well, Jesus makes it clear when he says uh, that we are, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the Sermon on the Mount, just to kind of put it in a wider context, Sometimes there's been people who've written books with this title, and they call it the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. That means that Jesus is truly countercultural. that the teachings and things that Jesus uh, puts forward are counter to the philosophy of our world and culture. They're the very opposite. I mean, the world would say, you hate your enemies. You seek to 
you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You, you know, you, you, know, you, you got to go after them. You can't, let them uh, you can't let them do this to you. The world has a different way of looking at things. Uh, Jesus, the kingdom, uh, is upside down. It's inside out. It's, it's kind of the opposite. It's a kingdom where weakness is power. Power is weakness, and suffering leads to glory. You remember what Jesus said in John 18, verse 36, about his kingdom? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. That means the origin of it, okay? It doesn't mean like some, unfortunately, that we are to be total separatists, you know, and go live on a farm somewhere in the mountains and hide ourselves from the world and make our own water or whatever it is you do in survival, you know, uh, you know, that we are to separate from the world. We are part of God made this world. Psalm 24 said the, the earth, it belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. It's not a separatist. He just says the origins of my kingdom is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, if its origins were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus says that we are to love our enemies, and that goes against something that really just goes against our very nature of the way we're wired. The world says get even. God says seek the good of those who harmed you. The culture or the world says get angry. God says, pray for them. The world says, don't waste your time loving bad people. God says, love them anyway, in spite of what they've done. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to set it in it. Unfortunately, the teachings of God's word that are codified in the Old Testament, they had become skewed. They become more dependent upon man-made traditions. That's why several times in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said. Remember that? You have heard it said, but, what it, but I say to you, he's setting his authority to correct, uh, not to come up with some new law. Remember, he, get, he said, I've come to fulfill it. I haven't come to destroy it, but I have come to fulfill it. And so Jesus reminds us that Every time we're faced with people who mistreat us, we, we've got one of three options. We can just keep on hating them, but that really doesn't accomplish anything, does it? We can uh, maybe find a way to manage that anger and kind of, you know, put a smile when we're really just, you know... I know nobody here does that, but, you know, and, it, and, you know, that is emotionally taxing and exhausting. We can pray, thirdly, or we can pray for, to God to bless them. Like, bless them? What are you talking about? They're my enemy. I don't, I don't want God to do anything good for them. Remember Jonah? Remember Jonah's whole back and forth with God? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. And he just says, this is what's so amazing, when you read it, he just says, God, look, I don't want to go to these people. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, look, I hate these people. And I know that if I preach your word to them, they're going to accept you. They're going to, you know, they're going to repent. And it's like, then I'm going to have to live with them, and I'm going to have to be nice to them. So how about I just don't go, and they all go to hell? Wouldn't that be easier? That's basically what he's saying. If you've ever 
read Jonah. Love your enemies. Easy to say, hard to do. Well, this morning, I want us to look at some steps of how do we do that? How do we put that into practice? This is, this is just going to be real practical, real, real practical stuff, all right? And uh, I want to just give you seven biblical steps. This is a good place to pull out a pen and paper and write it down, not just because not it's some thing that's going to be enshrined. I'm not going to get a Nobel Prize or anything like that. Um, but, you know, it's just good to be reminded. And, uh, and these are just things that I believe that all of us need to hear because it just comes right out of something Jesus directly said. No, uh, just, you know, no fog here. Jesus makes it really clear. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're born again, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, that means you are bound and obligated by your citizenship uh, to obey and listen to the king. And so how do we do this? Number one of these seven steps on how to love our enemies, number one is to greet them. Greet them. Now, we, we kind of overlooked that idea because uh, part of loving our enemies is that we, are, we greet them graciously when we see them. Now, that probably isn't what we're inclined to do, right? Uh, because what we, you know, sometimes instead of turning the other cheek, uh, we turn away so we don't have to say hello. Let's just be honest. We probably have all done this. Yeah? You know, we see somebody, and immediately when we see them, I'm not saying you hate them. I'm just saying you just, you just, you know, you just, you just, you just like, I don't need this today. And then somehow when you're going down the one aisle in Publix hoping to avoid them and you're looking at dog food and you don't even have a dog and you're just hoping they pass you by and you scoot over because you got to get the milk and bread and there they are reaching for the same milk and that's just one of those God little moments where he's going to put you to the test. You know, that hasn't really worked. So, you know, here's something real basic. Instead of looking the other way, ducking to the another room, ducking to an aisle, crossing the street, caller ID, oh, no, not going to do that, right? Uh, we just have a way of avoiding, but one of the first steps, I told you this is going to be practical, that if we think, well, Jesus said something in Matthew 5. Look at this scripture, Matthew 5, uh, 46 through 47. Well, that's uh, uh, down a little further where we're at. He says, for if you love those who love you, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now, the tax collectors were... You know, if he just had to randomly pick the lower echelon of people that thought those people were just terrible people, he picked tax collectors, um, their fellow Jews who were kind of working in cahoots with Rome and were bilking their own people out of uh, money and collecting taxes. They were just, um, he said, you know what, those tax collectors, they do the same. But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, he's saying, look, you're not doing anything exceptional if you're just being nice to your friends. That's nothing exceptional. That's not an exceptional mark 
of being a citizen of my kingdom. You see, the, the only, there's one part of your loving your enemies is to greet them instead of avoiding them. Uh, you know what? Ask Jesus to give you a smile. Shake their hands, greet them. You know what? Maybe you got to do it. Maybe you got to do Maybe you got to fake it. But you know the old saying, fake it till you make it, right? So sometimes you just got to do it. And after you do it, you know what? You think, well, you know what? They, they gave me a, a limp handshake. They didn't even smile. They looked like they were just as irritated to see me. But you know what? You're a citizen of the kingdom. And if they're a citizen of the kingdom, that's their problem. That's their issue. You, you rise to a higher standard. So we need to greet our enemies. Secondly, disarm them. Disarm them. You disarm them by doing the very thing they least expect. If you have your Bibles, just kind of uh, go left a little bit over to chapter 5, verse around 38 through 42, and this is a section he's, Jesus is talking about retaliation. In other words, disarming them is you're doing the very thing they don't expect. And Jesus, before he gets to this part about loving your enemies, he says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, this isn't on the screen, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you see where he just says, but I say to you, do not risk the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, your coat, let him have your cloak as well. In other words, you know, if he takes your, of course, that's kind of hard in Florida, but, you know, figuratively speaking, if he takes your coat, you know, give him your gloves, give him your hat, right? Uh, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give, verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You mean the guy that borrowed my lawnmower and still hasn't given it back? You mean I, I'm, I'm going to do something nice for him? Yeah, the next time he borrows it, fill it with gas, even though he doesn't return it filled with gas, Right? Now, I'm not saying they're an enemy of you, but just those are the little things, you know, that again, you do the unexpected. You, you know, when you show the kindness and goodness, even by speaking and complimenting them, you know what, again, you're disarming them. You're doing something because more than likely in their mind, they know, they know what they've, you know, what they've done. But what are you doing? You're showing and demonstrating the king, by your actions, by disarming them. And sometimes we disarm them with the words that we speak. I read a story about General Robert E. Lee, who was once asked his opinion of a fellow officer who was widely known to be one of Lee's fiercest critics and detractors. And the general responded when he was asked, about this particular other general, General Lee responded that he thought that the man was a very fine officer. And the questioner replied, but General, uh, I guess you don't know what he's been saying about you behind your back. And I like what General Lee said. He said, oh, yes, I know full well what he's been saying, but I was asked my opinion of him, not his opinion of me. You get that? In other words, as long as it's up to you, 
you speak words that are affirming to the glory of God. And when you do that, even when you're around this person and you compliment them and you say something kind, you're disarming them because you're showing, even like the example of when you're commanded to go one mile, when you're when you basically you're asked to do something that is inconvenient and when really you have a justification just to refuse and you not just do one mile, you do two miles. You take them to the hospital in, in Tampa and you drive around for 40 minutes to find a parking spot and not only do you wait for them and they got their appointment wrong, and your day is shot because you have to wait for them. This is not a personal story, okay? <laughs> and you pick them up finally and take them, and they're hungry. Can we stop and eat? And you're already two and a half hours behind. Not only do you take them to lunch, you buy their lunch. You see, do you, is that a heaven or hell issue? No. But that's... That's a kingdom value, right? That, that's thinking the way citizens of the kingdom think, and that's what Jesus is driving at here. Thirdly, and this ties into the third, is you do good to them. Two verses from Luke that will be on the screen. Jesus said, but I say to you, uh, again, Luke's uh, uh, portion uh, parallel of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. In verse 35, in that same chapter, he says it again, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That's agape love. That's giving without expecting something in return. And he said, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. He says twice, he says, love your neighbors, or love your enemies, I'm sorry, love your enemies, and both times he connects it with doing good to them. There's a, there's a, a law of repetition when you study the Bible and you see things uh, repeated or you see things said more than once, verily, verily, you know, there's, there's an emphasis in the, the language that when you see things repeated, Isaiah 6, holy, 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 anytime you see a repetition it's, it's as if it's putting it emphasis upon it. You know, it's like bold type and neon, you know, lights. It's saying pay attention to this because it's repeated. Jesus says that twice to do good, love your enemies. It's more than just an intellectual thing, but it's actually demonstrating an action when you do good to your enemies. And part of that doing good is, and this is the tough part, is that we see we see them beyond the lens of our own hurt and pain. That's tough to do, isn't it? Because we're always looking, we're always looking at our situation and life through how we have been hurt, how we have been justified in something that was done. We, we feel that, and it's, it's, it's removing that. And here's the challenge, is seeing one another through the eyes of Christ, Seeing one another through the eyes of Christ. Aren't you glad that Christ saw us on a redemptive side than just who we were as enemies of God? That while we were yet enemies, 
The Bible says that Christ died for us, Christ gave his life for us, that God saw us and who we are in Christ rather than just who we are in Adam, if you understand that parallel of Romans 5. We need to see people made in the image of God. And I'm talking about the people that sometimes you, you might see on your Facebook feed, the news, and they, they are the most offensive. They do the most vile things, say the most vile things. They are image bearers of their creator. They are image bearers of their creator. Doing good means when we do good for the glory of God, redemptively, you know what, we're doing them good, here's the key, that's promoting their healing and not ours. You see, we want to do it to, to justify us, right? We want to do it because we need our need. We need our hurt. We need our pain. We need the salve on that. What do you mean do good to them? They should be doing good to me, right? Jesus says, love your enemies, but you show that you see them redemptively by not just loving them, but you go one step further and you do good to them. Said it twice in Luke. Underlined it. Bold type. Pay attention to this. That means that as long as it's up to you, and you know this, and I hate to say this, but you're hearing this, and now you're all accountable to hear this, so there's no excuse for you, all right? You're just, you're locked in, the doors are locked, um, you're not getting out, so now you're accountable to what Jesus said. So you can't say, oh, I didn't know that. Well, that's out the window uh, about uh, 20 minutes ago, okay? Now you're accountable. You're hearing what Jesus said. This is really not murky water of Bible interpretation. We don't need to consult the Greek. We don't need to consult 18 versions. This is really pretty straightforward and clear stuff. There's not a lot of debate on this, but it means this, to get practical, it means Christian, follower of Jesus, it means you make the first move. You waiting, you're waiting for them to send you an email. You're waiting for them to call you. You're waiting for them to do... No, you make the first move. You send the email. You send the note. You pick up the phone. You make the contact. You bridge. You bridge that gap because you're, you're a citizen of the kingdom. You say, well, what if they don't respond? It doesn't matter. That's not your problem. If they don't respond and, well, I did this, and you know what? They didn't even acknowledge that I sent them that gift card. They didn't even say nothing about it, and I'd be gone if I'm ever going to give them anything again. I was trying to be nice. I was trying to do what Pastor said about bridging this gap and loving my enemies, and look what it's got me. I'm more irritated now than I was before it happened. I love Romans 12, 18. It's not on the screen, but you ought to write it down. One verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Did you hear that? Romans 12, 18. So far as it depends on you. The ball's in your court. 
and you can make some peace and you can bring some healing and be redemptive in this relationship, then you have to do that. You have to do that. Number four, all these kind of weave together, refuse to speak evil of them. That's what I think when Jesus said in verse 28 of Luke 6, it's not on the screen, he says, bless those who curse you. Part of that blessing those who curse you is that you, you and I, make a choice not to think evil thoughts about somebody. And kind of like that illustration I gave with the general, you refuse to speak evil words about them uh, even if they've wronged you. And that's hard to do. That's tough to do. Because sometimes those words, you ever find those words sometimes come out and you just see it in slow motion? You know, because it's so embedded in your system and you begin to just almost, almost impulse, you begin to speak and say things. Uh, don't be like the husband and wife that was driving down the highway and off in the distance there they, they noticed a mule the husband looked over at his wife and said, well, there goes one of your relatives. She replied, yep, by marriage. Uh, so, you know, you got two quick ones there. Look at Proverbs 18.21. Proverbs 18.21. Some of you are just, that's wafering its way through. the Proverbs 18.21. Look at this. Key verse. And this isn't about prosperity teaching or health and wealth. This is, this is Proverbs 18.21. If it gets hijacked in the wrong use, that's, that's not my problem. But this applies right here. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen, I can recount things. Maybe you can too. As I even think about it, I can remember I had to have been maybe four. I was at a neighbor's house little buddy named Steve. I still remember the name, Steve. And I remember his dad's just got really all, I don't even know what it was about or whatever. And I can still remember that. I can still remember a coach that just dogged me. And it wasn't over performance because I never was a great athlete. I just didn't want to have to go home. But, but, it, but it got, you know, it, 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 there was things that just got personal. And the, what he said and the, some things he said, those were, you know, the old, what is it, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You know that's not true, right? Words will hurt you way more than sticks and stones. And yet, sadly, confessing, I have been guilty and sinful in words that I've spoken. And the Bible says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Every time we open our mouth, either life comes out or death comes out. Forgiveness and to our enemies sometimes is not possible because you know why? We won't quit talking. Sometimes we just got to shut up and quit talking about it, quit rehearsing it and quit talking about them and you can, you, you can either criticize somebody or you can pray for them, but you can't do both. Right? And, you know, Christians are really clever in the way we criticize somebody. Well, you know, I, I, I've been praying for them. I, 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 uh, I've been burdened by 
I've been burdened by that marriage for a long time, and uh, you know, I've just been really concerned about, as I pray and lay those children's names before the Lord, I, I just see the way that they parent. And you know, you hear what you're doing? Christians are sneaky folks, you know? You know? I mean, more gossip goes on in prayer meetings, right? We're sharing, right? I'm kidding, but not quite kidding. Look at James. You know James, James 3. Said, talking about taming the tongue, he said, No human can tame the tongue. It is a, look at the words he uses, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with that same tongue, we curse people. And notice he, how he said, who are made in the likeness of God. That's that image bearer. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. I, 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 that's important because guess what? He's talking to Christians that are doing this stuff. He says, my brothers or my sisters. He's talking to church folks. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to Christians when he says, these things ought not, not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? I still remember uh, Tony Evans' illustration talking about uh, not speaking evil of, of our principal here, but I remember the illustration that Tony Evans gave, uh, you know, concerning forgiveness, and it kind of ties in here. Remember when he gave that illustration about the bell tower? Um, and then I was reading something yesterday, and I found out he got it from Corey Ten Boom, but I'll give them both credit. Uh, but, but he gave that illustration of the bell tower, that the bell tower has that long rope, you know, you pull on it and, it, and it rings the bell, makes the loud sound. Forgiveness is when we stop pulling the rope. Every time we talk about so-and-so, every time we talk about what they did or what, how they this or how that, you know what we're doing? We're pulling the rope. And he says and reminds us that genuine forgiveness is when we quit pulling the rope. And, and, and let's, you know, it's not in, instantaneous. Some of those big, you know, bells that sometimes you see, you know, in other words, you can stop and guess what? That bell is still, still swinging. And it's still making some noise, isn't it? But you quit pulling on that rope, what happens to that noise? It gets fainter and then eventually it stops. Until you do what? Grab the rope again. Well, I thought I was out of my system. Well, we all thought it was too. Do you what? Grab that rope and you just pulling that thing to the glory of God. No, not the glory of God. You just, you just, because we, we, we love, we love attending pity parties. We love it. We love inviting our three friends, me, myself, and I. We love those type of parties because we want to feel justified and Jesus is not debating. He's not even putting out there the justification of why they are your enemy. He's just saying it really doesn't matter. Here's what I'm saying to you. Here's what I'm saying to you. And that leads us to the fifth principle is to thank God for them. Now this is, this is, this is I call, this, uh, I call this a rough truth. 
And when I say a rough truth, I mean, I kind of think again about, uh, you know, the, the, the roads and the travel on our way to fulfilling and God's destiny. Every road that we figuratively travel in our life is not a smooth sailing highway. There, you know, and the, you know, and again, the that, that uh, study we did over the summer about detours. I mean, there's detours, but sometimes you get off on roads, or if you've ever had to go to somebody's house and you knew that, you know, we're going to take this accent, we're going to go down here, and then there's this, this, um, this, this mailbox, and you'll miss it, and there's this dirt, rocky road, and you drive on that for about a quarter of a mile, and it's rough. Rocks are flying, and you're like, good grief, are we going to, you know, find some cult out here that's going to kidnap us, you know? I mean, you're just wondering where this road's leading you. It's a rough road that's taking you someplace you want to go. Sometimes that's the way God's destinies are. They're, they're rough roads, and some truths are rough road truths that doesn't make, that means they're not real smooth. But nevertheless, they're part of the destination that God has us on. So when, it, when the principle is that we thank God for them, talking about loving our enemies, and if you believe in the sovereignty of God, and if you're a Christian, you believe in the sovereignty of God, whether you even understand it, it just means that God's in control, you must believe that even your enemies are sent to you by God's design and with God's approval. You see why that's a rough road? It, think about this. If Satan could not tempt Job without God's permission, right? If Satan couldn't sift Peter, remember, without Jesus' permission, your enemies could not torment you without God's permission. So here's the rough truth that we have to step back and, and, and look at. It means that somewhere in God's sovereign purpose that this relationship and this situation is a necessary rough road, exit, detour, that God has purpose in my life, this person. That means that in my own spiritual growth, in my own life, God has put a Saul into my life. You see, David was anointed as a teenager. He was anointed three times. He was anointed with his family. He was anointed by his tribe, and ultimately he was anointed over king over all of Israel. But the first time he was anointed, he was anointed over all his other brothers by Samuel, remember? And something on the road from dad's house to the throne, there were some necessary roads and detours and some rough roads, and part of God's sovereign purpose was to put a Saul in his life because it was part of the development of his destiny. Are you with me? You see, and you see, that's why it's rough. We don't like that. We don't, you know, we don't want to hear that. You know, that God in his sovereignty puts an Esau in, in our life, uh, but sometimes he puts a Daniel, and sometimes he'll put an Absalom. Sometimes he'll put an Esther in. He'll put a Judas. But then there's a Barnabas. And he gives us a Timothy. If God is in charge, if God is sovereign and he's in control, that means that God uses each one of these people 
that he has put there, he has purposely allowed to come into our path because there's something that this purpose, this person is going to shake loose, rub smooth, whatever it is, because behind your enemy stands the sovereign hand of God. That's why you can look at the situation and need to look at it through different lenses than just saying, woe is me, woe is me, I'm a victim here. And, and, and don't misunderstand, it's not, it's, not, it's not in any way saying that what was done to you was evil and, 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 and should be judged and punished. But if you believe Romans 8, 28, when God said, and for those that love God, he works all things together for good. Not some things. All things. Even the enemies in your life are part of God's, well, like David, it's part of the path taking us to where God wants us to be. Thanking God for them. And if you really want to get radical... You get a picture of them and put it on your refrigerator, and every time you go buy it, you say, I thank God for this person. <laughs> now, if I come to your house and find my picture on your refrigerator, I'm, I'm really going to be offended. I'm just letting you know now, all right? <laughs> Number six, all we used to get, pray for them. Isn't that what we're told? Jesus, pray for them. The German pastor, Martin Niemöller, Lutheran pastor that was in prison because he was he was faithful to stand up against Hitler and the Nazis in World War II. He was put in a prison in a concentration camp, and he prayed daily from his prison cell for his captors. And other prisoners said, Pastor Martin, why do you do that? That's, I mean, that's crazy. Why, why do you pray for your enemies? And I love what he said. He said to them, he said, do you know anyone who needs your prayers more than your enemies? He said, if we don't pray for them, who will? But what if I really, really just hate that person? Listen, do you think God doesn't know your heart? We somehow think that we can hide stuff from God. We, 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 kinda, we come into church with kind of our religious Sunday wear, and we think we can get on our knees before God and, and just kind of have this pretend relationship. God knows all about you. He made you. He designed you. Read Psalm 139 sometime. He knitted you while you were yet in your mother's womb. That's what the psalmist said. Your days are numbered before him. He knows all about you. So when you're honest to him, you can kind of cut through the clutter. He's like, okay, now we, now we can do something now because you're being honest. Be honest before God. Say, God, I just don't want to do this. I don't like this person. I actually, Lord, I... And this is where... This is where God gives us some truth. When we say, God, I don't have the love to give this person. And I believe that God invites us to take what we don't have and get from him what we lack. God, I in myself do not have the grace to forgive this person. But I know you have all grace. And your mercies are new every morning. And I need some of your grace to work through my life. You see, if the Bible says that in Colossians 3, 3, that my life is hidden with Christ in God, that I am united in Christ, 
Jesus said in John 15, he said, uh, you are the branch, I am the vine. He said, without me, you can do nothing. We say that, but we don't really always believe it. That means that my life is intrinsically, spiritually, eternally connected to his life, that his life, uh, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not my life I live, but it's the life of Christ that I live, the Son of God that lives through me. You with me? So that means that where I'm empty, and I should always be empty, really, because as long as I feel like I've got a little stash of resources, I'm really never broken and humble enough to be dependent on him. And Jesus wants us to be totally dependent on him. That's why sometimes we go through brokenness, and the lesson we don't learn is the lesson that we can't manage this thing on our own. We need him. There's no shame in that. He's just waiting for us to get to that place. Where did Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, verse 3 of Matthew 5? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One version says, blessed are those who are bankrupt of self. Because see, that's the, that's the prerequisite of being a citizen of the kingdom. You gotta be poor in spirit. That doesn't mean to be just some little, you know, meek as a mouse, mild person. That's not saying that. It's saying as long as you go into this kingdom full of your own stuff and full of your own resources, you'll never, never understand the supply, even as Jim said, the supply that is ours in Christ. I'll give you something that's always helped me that I've put in just about every Bible I've ever had and just some little truths. A teacher who's with the Lord by the name of Dick Woodward started a ministry called the Mini Bible College. Great Bible teacher. He's with the Lord, died back in 2014. And he had these four spiritual secrets. And again, maybe sometime I'll elaborate more on them, but I just put it in here for your edification. And he had these four spiritual secrets, all right? Look at these. First one he says, I can't, but he can. And I am in him, and he is in me. I can't, but he can. I am in him, and he is in me. Secondly, I am not, but he is. And I am in him, and he is in me. I don't want to, but he wants to. And I am in him, and he is in me. And when I begin to allow him to work through me, and I begin to express Jesus in my life because I'm allowing him to live his life through my life, I express my awe to him by the fourth. I didn't. But he did, and because I am in him, he is in me. You see, this is the life of allowing Jesus to live through us. And Dick Woodward always said, and this is the, this is the he says, how do you learn these? How do you learn these? When you're broken and helpless. When you're broken and helpless, that's how you learn these things. I can't. I can't forgive. I can't bless this enemy. Okay. But he can. And he wants to. And he will through your life. Last. 
is when we ask God to bless them. Asking God to bless them. When someone has really done you wrong, you'd say, when I talk about enemies, boy, they just their face comes up. You, know, you, just, you try to shake it off, but it's when you begin to ask God to do for them what you want God to do for you. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Pretty radical. R.T. Kendall, uh, his book, Total Forgiveness, really lays us out. Think of it this way. The greater the hurt, the greater the potential blessing that will come when we forgive from, a, from the heart and by God's grace begins to bless those who curse us. It's again, not saying or in any way excusing evil or condoning mistreatment. Don't hear me say that. It's not canceling the need for punishment when a crime has been committed. But I think it goes back to what I always seem to go back to, to the words what Joseph said to his brothers in, in Genesis 50, 20. Look at this. He says, what you, what you, talking to his brothers, and you know that story, what you meant for evil... But as for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but what? God, there's the sovereignty of God, meant it for good. So therefore, what was meant for evil, God had a higher purpose. The greater, the greater the situation that needs forgiveness, the greater the potential blessing. Some final thoughts. When we do this, when we begin to implement this, our enemies humble us, don't they? Our enemies humble us. But also our enemies keep us on our knees, should keep us on our knees in prayer. Our enemies reveal our weakness, but they also expose our desperate need for God. On the road to our destiny, God will bring the Sauls, will bring the Absaloms. And I think that if we didn't need them, if you believe in the purposes of God, if we didn't need them, He wouldn't send them. If He didn't need them, He wouldn't send them. He wouldn't allow them. Therefore, I have to think, Father knows best. And I'm not talking about the old TV show. I'm saying our Father knows best and when we love our enemies the best way we can because we're saying, God, I don't understand it. I can't, but you can. I don't have it, but you have it. And therefore, I'm going to avail myself to glorify you through even this situation that has hurt me and harmed me so deeply. You say, well, where do you see that? How about Jesus? You remember what Peter said in Acts 2? He says, this Jesus that was predestined to be crucified, you evil men bound him and crucified him. That means evil, evil, evil. But little did they know that God had your, yours and my eternal destiny hinged on their evil actions because God had something greater at work in the death of Christ. Jesus, remember, Jesus had enemies. 
They killed him. But what did he do? He loved them anyway. The question is, do you and I want to be like Jesus? Do we really want to be like Jesus?